0: We are turning to John chapter 9 this morning. It is a rather long story, but it is uh, one story in itself, and rather than breaking it up into various parts, I've decided to read the whole thing. There are 41 verses. Again, you're welcome to follow along as I read, or you can also listen if that's easier for you. I find often as I'm reading this, I'm trying to imagine in my mind what is happening. It is a compelling story. So, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, hear the true and inerrant word of God. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is light the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says it is, and some said, it is. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Salum and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see." Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, "Man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner." He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the Word of God. I was meeting with another pastor this past week when he told me about a project he had begun in his congregation two years ago. He performed 13 funerals in his congregation, and you say, well, of course, it was COVID. He reminded me that only one of them was COVID-related. He began this project because he was bothered by the ignorance he had of many of the testimonies of those he was burying. So he made it his project over the next number of years to go to the older folks in his congregation and ask them, what would you like for me to say about you when I am performing your funeral? Okay, so I'm asking you a similar kind of question this morning. What would you hope that I would say about you when it is time for your funeral? Maybe you think that's a long ways off. I've never even thought about that question. I am surprised that a number of you have come to me wanting to discuss what I will say about you when you die. I think that's actually a really good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a recognition of the fact we will not live forever. In fact, all of us are going to die, and when we do there is a very apt time to answer the question, what would we want people to know about us? Or to put it this way, in the grandest possible words, what matters most about my life? Is it my accomplishments professionally? Is it my family and how well they have turned out? What is it for you? What matters most? What gives you that purpose in life? Well, as ironic as it seems... This particular passage that I'm reading this morning from John chapter 9 tells us a very surprising answer to that question. And this is the way I'm going to put it, and then I'm going to explain it to you in four parts. This passage tells us that at at least part of what we pursue as our purpose in life is the recognition that even though we were born blind, we now see. And God is using that in ways that we could never even imagine. Now you think, Pastor, I'm not sure about the connection between the two, so let me explain. And I start with the first three verses of this chapter, which are truly remarkable verses, and they address what many of us would want to ask about the problem of evil. How is it that evil exists in this world, and how do we explain the fact that it affects us so radically. To understand why the question is asked, you need to think again where we are in the Gospel of John. There's this big scenery change that has occurred at the beginning of chapter 9. Up to this point, Jesus has been at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's left that feast. The feast is over. Eight days of celebration are done, and now Jesus is walking in Jerusalem. And he sees a man who was born blind. He's notorious to the point where the writer notes he was blind since birth. Later on, we find out he was a beggar. So a lot of people knew him. Of all the people Jesus could have selected in order to talk to, and we find out heal, this man was one of the most notorious. People knew him. Everyone knew he was the blind man. And his presence occasions one of the great questions of human existence. Jesus is asked, Rabbi, teacher, tell us why this man is blind. Was it because he sinned or was it because his parents sinned? There's all kinds of loaded assumptions in that question, but in the disciples' minds, there were two possibilities. Either it was his fault or the fault of his parents. The question is, where is the blame going to be pinned? Now, if you're asking yourself the question, why in the world would they ask this? Well, I would simply ask you a question in return. How often have you not asked yourself the question, what did I do wrong so that I am suffering like this? Now I feel like I'm going to just disappoint you because Jesus doesn't answer their question. He does not say it was him, it was his parents. He was the presence of sin in the world. It was Adam and Eve's fault. Let me launch into a long explanation of the problem of evil in this world. God is sovereign, God is loving, and sin still still remains. How is that possible? Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents, that is, he is saying, your two possibilities, I'm not going to take either... But, he says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let me give you a word of caution before I explain that. Jesus is not saying that human beings are not responsible for the presence of sin in this world. And I would even add there are times where we can see pretty direct connections between our sin and then some of the consequences we suffer. That's a different sort of discussion. Jesus is not answering that question. He is not addressing the question of fault. Listen to this. Instead, he is addressing the purpose of this man's suffering. Not whose fault that it is. The Bible talks about that in other places. Instead, Jesus says, I want to talk to you not about how this happened, but really, why it happened, that is, what is God doing in it? To put it this way, this man was born blind, Jesus says, so that you can learn something about the way that God works. And there is so much in this passage. Oh my word. When I looked at this passage and studied it and then thought, how in the world I'm going to preach 41 verses to you, it requires me to discipline my time. But these first three verses are so important, I cannot help but tell you, if you don't understand the question, you're going to wind up with the wrong answer. The question that is being asked here is, what is the purpose in this man's suffering? What will God do in it? There are plenty of other places in the Bible that help us understand how sin came into the world and how it affects us. I'm very thankful for that. Just don't confuse the question with the one being answered here. If it sounds like I'm belaboring this, I am, because it is one of the things that we often struggle with most in life. We tell ourselves, if I only understood who's to blame, I could make sure that I would never suffer again. If I could only understand why this happened, that is, and whose fault it is, I could pin the blame on the right person. It's my husband's fault. It's my children's fault. It is my parents' faults. It is my doctor's faults. But Jesus' answer sets up the rest of the story so that Jesus will answer this question. What will God do with the effects of sin in this man's life? What is God doing now that this man is born blind? The second part of this passage, in verses 4 through 7, gives us at least part of the answer. The man goes from blind to I can see, and it's a very fascinating sort of way that Jesus does this. Jesus points out the primary way in which God will work in this world when there is evil, and that is Jesus brings mercy. That's one of the ways that God is at work. And that becomes very obvious in verses 4 through 7 in the way that Jesus responds to this man. First, he tells him that the reason that Jesus came into the world is to work the works of God. In other words, he's saying to this man, you want to know, or to his disciples, you want to know whose fault it is. I'm about to tell you for what purpose it is, and here's one of the ways you can understand the purpose of suffering, and that is you can understand my work only if you see clearly the effects of sin. It's sort of this, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Second, Jesus proclaims that he himself brings that light. It is easy for us to see, it is not as easy, I should say, for us to see in our translations than it is, I would tell you, in the original. Jesus is saying he is one, the one who brings light to the one who is in darkness. We read about that at the beginning of this book. John introduces Jesus by saying the word was the light of men. Remember that? But now in the story, in John chapter 9, we see the reality of this. Here's a man who is in utter darkness, and Jesus is about to bring him light in a world that was so dark, physically and spiritually. And this man certainly wondered at a point, will there ever be light for me at all where I ever see again? Here is Jesus. And what Jesus says is, I am here to work the works of God. And what is the work of God? That evil, hear this, that evil and every effect of evil would eventually be destroyed. And if you want to see how that's true, Jesus says, watch this. And he spits into the dirt, the same dirt that Genesis says that God formed. Man out of. And Jesus, the mediator of all creation, the one through whom human beings were made, this mediator spits into the dirt there, and he creates a paste with his saliva and places it on the man, and the man is healed. (laughs) And to emphasize it, he sends the man to the pool called the (laughs) scent. He says, go to the place that I am sending you, a public place, one of the most public places in all of Jerusalem, the pools of Siloam. Wash there and you will see. I want you to listen carefully to the first way in which this passage is good news for you this morning. Jesus has the power and intention to defeat evil. He is powerful. He is merciful. And he works the work of God now. And he will bring that work to completion eventually. It does not matter the presence of sin in your world, whatever that presence is. It could be of your own origin. For many of us, that's true. We have brought things upon ourselves. It could be an effect of sin that you had nothing to do with. You're suffering because of sin's presence in this world. Maybe you're blind. Maybe you can't hear. Maybe you're suffering with a terminal illness. Maybe you're struggling in some other way. Whatever that way is... What this miracle of Jesus emphasizes so clearly is that Jesus is the light of the world. Wherever there is darkness, Jesus will bring light. He will overcome. Do you hear that? It's true. Jesus will overcome. He is the light of the world. That's good news for those of us who have blind and are blind this morning. (laughs) But here's the thing about this passage, and this is the third thing I want you to see, and that's the depth of the evil in this passage. Most of this passage is spent on the Jews' objection to what Jesus has done. That's verses 8 through 34, that's a lot of verses. And the reason there is so much recording of their objections to Jesus is that you would expect, maybe you imagine yourself in this story and you think, if I saw someone who was blind, somebody who I knew in my community, and Jesus came and gave them light, what would my response be? I would run to Jesus and say, you must be the light. Don't fool yourself. Do not fool yourself, friends. There are a lot of reasons that come into our hearts that would keep us from believing in Jesus. And there are a couple of them noted here. Remember, these were Jews, people who studied the Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They confessed to longing for the coming of the Messiah. Their entire family line from Abraham onward was trained to look for Jesus. And now Jesus came and performed this miracle. And they say, whoa. You think you're the Messiah? There are really two attempts in their objection. Twice they try to figure out how Jesus could not have possibly healed this man. It is impossible for Jesus to be the light that overcomes darkness. The first objection to Jesus is that he did this on the Sabbath. Even if this man could see, and first they question that, are you really this man? Is it possible for you to be this man? They've got to check with people. They check with people who knew him. They check with his parents. Is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And once the evidence is overwhelming, their objection is this. Well, you did it at the wrong time. How could you do it on the Sabbath, Jesus? That's crazy. For then the Sabbath was a big rule with lots of rules to support the big rule. If you're interested in what the Sabbath is all about, come back tonight. Pastor Dan is going to preach about the fourth commandment. I can say this part, and I don't think I'm going to steal his thunder for tonight. The Jews misunderstood. The Sabbath was not designed, first of all, as a way to limit human beings. No, the Sabbath was given to us as human beings before even sin entered the world to express the true freedom we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe I can just illustrate it this way. Are you enjoying true freedom in Jesus Christ this morning as you worship? This should be the freest moment in your existence. The Sabbath day with its freedom was meant to point us to the true freedom ultimately that we'll have in Jesus Christ. That's why the Sabbath exists. And so the notion that Jesus could heal in the Sabbath, it seemed impossible to these Jews. It demonstrated incredible mercy, a mercy that again anticipated the coming reality when all things would be made right, but for these Jews couldn't be. <laughs> no chance, because if Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he was really attacking not only their understanding of a commandment; they were he was attacking the structure of their religion that had no room for mercy at all, which led to their second attempt. After confirming again with his parents that Jesus did in fact heal their son, the Jews. Object in a slightly different version of their original objection. They double down. They challenge this man to give glory to God. What could be more religious? Give glory to God, they're saying. You're giving credit to this man? Give glory to God. And in order to explain, they say, we are the rightful followers of Moses. How in the world can you give glory to God without following Moses? They say we take our direction from the lawgiver, not the one who shows mercy on the Sabbath. Why would you want to follow the one who shows mercy? Instead, look at Moses. And yet, over and over, the problem they're running into beyond even their misunderstanding of the law of God, the problem they run into is so incredible, it cannot help but bring you a smile and maybe a chuckle to your heart. The problem they have is that the man's eyes are actually opened. How can they object? Jesus did it on the Sabbath. He's receiving their praise for what has happened And as much as they object to how this is not right, his eyes are actually opened. He was in the darkness, now he is in the light, he sees. And the great irony of this passage, such delicious, wonderful irony... Is that it is the Jews who are suffering the blindness, not this man. And the blindness they are suffering is not with their eyes, it is with their hearts. They cannot see Jesus as he truly is. They are spiritually blind. Do you see that? They are objecting to this man who had his eyes opened from hearts that are spiritually blind. That is why John takes so much time to record this in order to impress upon us the deliciousness of the irony. To stress it a bit, the depth of the evil operating in the lives of these objectors is so deep they cannot see Jesus for who he truly is. Given the proof of the miracle, they seek to find any way to avoid the truth. They hide behind the law. They confess just trying to do the right thing but if in our rights, seeking to do the right, we are not in Christ, I can tell you, friend, we are also spiritually blind. I know how easy that comes to many of our hearts. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I want other people to do the right thing. Just do what's right. Do what's right. But if our do what's right does not honor Jesus Christ Christ, We are also spiritually blind. We confess to be in the light, but in fact, we are in darkness. Which brings me to the fourth part of this story. In verses 35 through 41, it is the summary of what happened, sort of the concluding scene Jesus learned that they cast him out of the synagogue. Maybe that doesn't make a big difference to you. It's like, well, why didn't he just go to another one? Synagogue, schminagogue, whatever. Go from one to the next. Didn't work like that. The synagogue was not only the place you worshipped. It was the center of your religious community. It was your community. If you left there, there was no other place to go. You didn't just go to the next synagogue. No, that wasn't your synagogue. You went here. What they have done is remove him from all social connection. Remember, they threatened his parents, and his parents said, well, what do you want us to say? Now this man is convinced to the point that he does not give them the answer they want, and they pull the pin on the only power grenade they have. That is, we can remove you from the synagogue, and they do. And now Jesus sees this man. He finds him and he asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, who is that? And Jesus said, I am him. You have seen him and it is he was speaking to you. I am the Son of Man. I've said this before. I need to emphasize it again to you. The Son of Man is one of the most common ways of the Gospel writers referring to Jesus. Why do they refer to to Jesus' this way? It is not primarily to emphasize His humanity. It is to emphasize His divinity from Daniel chapter 7. Where the Son of Man is seen in the throne of heaven. And when Jesus asked him... Do you see the Son of Man? He's not asking Him. Do you see with your eyes that I'm here? He's asking Him, do you see me in all the glory of my divinity? And the man says, I do. I see you. I know who you are. And verse 38 emphasizes that by saying, and the man worshiped Jesus. The very thing that the Jews said, don't do that, give glory to God. This man now gives glory to God. He gives glory to the Son of God come in the flesh. So here's the question for you this morning. Why is this recorded for us? Why is this here that we might know the works of God that Jesus is working according to the first three verses? How does Jesus answer the question that I raised at the beginning about the purpose for which this man was born blind? Remember, he rejects the question of, well, tell us who's at fault. The Bible answers that in other places. Instead, he focuses their, uh, their attention on the question and give me the purpose. Jesus said it is so that the works of God might be seen. Okay, here's the point in the sermon in which you can rightfully ask me the question, so pastor, what is the purpose for this man's blindness? I've already sort of led you halfway there when partway through the sermon I said part of the reason that this man was born blind was so that he could come to see Jesus and the power of Jesus would be displayed in him. I don't want to pass by that too quickly. I know some of you carry tremendous burdens in your hearts and lives. Let me tell you again... One of the great purposes that God has for you to walk through that suffering, suffering that may have endured for many, many years, is that God delights that the glory of His Son and His healing power, the mercy that He has for you, will be seen in your life. I know when I say that it doesn't take away the suffering, but what it does tell you is this, there's a purpose in it part of what really frustrates us as human beings is when we walk through things and we cannot understand the purpose. Let me tell you again, now in a more exalted language, part of the purpose for your suffering is the highest purpose the world would ever have, and that is that Jesus will be glorified in you. Do you believe that? If you can honestly say that you believe that, let me tell you, your blindness has not gone to waste. But let me add to that something else. I said you were halfway there. Let me bring you home if I can. The reason why John records this story and the reason why Jesus tells this man, you are now able to see, the reason it's in John chapter 9 is so that you would know not only that Jesus and the power, the mercy of Jesus can be seen in you in your suffering It is even more, can I say, it's built upon that fact, upon that foundation is built this reality. You were born blind, you were sufferers, this man suffer, so that other people through the glory that you give to Jesus can then come to see. If I can put it this way, your suffering has not only a vertical dimension, that is that Christ should be glorified. From that vertical comes a horizontal. People will see in your life that you were born blind so that like you, they can eventually see. Now when I tell you that, I am not confessing to know exactly how that is working in your life. Maybe your suffering is a testimony to those around you, even in your own home. Maybe your suffering is a testimony to those who know you. Maybe it's a suffering that is a testimony to your community. What if your suffering is precisely what God is using to bring greatest glory to His Son and to bring others to see Him as well? Well, let me ask you again, what if your suffering is not incidental to your life? That's how we often think about it. It's incidental. How can I work past it? How can I make it so it's not there anymore? Let me ask you just this question. What if your suffering, what if my suffering is not incidental to my life, but it is the means by which God is using to testify to others about the mercy he means to display in us? I'm going to end my sermon this morning by telling you about a story in a book. You're probably going to recognize it. I did not read the book first. My wife gave it to me to read. The songwriter, Laura Story, tells about a relationship with her husband. If you know her story, her husband is now in a very difficult place. He has suffered a great deal. I remember reading, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, paraphrasing, that he can't remember things. You go into the bathroom, and because of how he has suffered physically, he can't remember he went in there to brush his teeth. She has to tell him, brush your teeth. Then he'll come out of the bathroom, and she cannot know whether he has actually brushed his teeth. Did you brush your teeth? And he can't remember whether he did, so she's got to check the toothbrush. Can you imagine that day after day after day after day? Imagine how frustrating that would be, and how much you'd be tempted to ask, Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Have you never asked that question? And then in her book, she comes to the passage that we're reading this morning in John chapter 9. And wonderfully, she understands the way Jesus switches the question from fault to purpose. And this morning, I want to do the same for you in the sermon. What if you're seeking to bring purpose into your life and all along it is God who has been working His purposes through you? What if your suffering is terrible as it is and I grieve with you? This is not an easy just pass over your grief as though it does not matter. What if your suffering, as terrible as it is, is designed to lead you and others to the day when you will actually see again? What if God is using your suffering, your blindness, so that others will see? That takes a part of our lives which we ordinarily try to avoid and places it at the very center of God's purposes for you. Let me say it now into positive. This passage tells us that we were blind so that others can see Jesus. That is gospel news for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I would tell you this morning, along with these precious people who are here, that we just want things to be right. We don't want suffering. We don't want pain. We don't want sorrow. And it is true that one day that will all be taken away. Our own struggle with sin, the effects of sin in this world, the pain, the suffering that we endure, it'll all be gone. And your word trains us to pray along with the saints in the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But your word also gives meaning to places in life where otherwise we would not find meaning. There would only be despair and one of those places in which the power of jesus christ is on display this morning is in his ability to use suffering to not only glorify himself but for us to be useful in his purposes in this world lord i'm very conscious that this may strike some of us as a very difficult truth i pray lord instead of it being difficult it would be liberating that we would see that you are so great a God that you can use even this to glorify your Son. It is in his name that we pray, amen.